It's no secret that Russia has become the world's playground for ransomware groups and that America is target number one. The threat of ransomware attacks on U.S. businesses and critical infrastructure took an ominous turn when a prominent Russian ransomware group named Conti threatened to attack any nation or organization retaliating against Moscow for its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is Techtopia. So what exactly are ransomware attacks? How do ransomware groups operate and carry out these attacks? How do they hide and move their money? How can law enforcement agencies track down and monitor these funds, identify who's responsible, bring them to justice, and potentially recover ransomware proceeds? And how can financial institutions stay compliant with the laws given the prevalence of these illicit funds and the impunity with which these bad actors are essentially moving them on the blockchain with considerable anonymity and in broad daylight? My guest today has a lot of these answers. Max Galka is the founder and CEO of Elementus, a New York-based blockchain and crypto analytics startup, where, by way of disclosure, I serve as the chief strategy officer. A data scientist by training and passion and a former derivatives trader at Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse, Galka is a noted authority on ransomware attacks. He's the lead author of a disturbing new report released this week titled Ransomware, a Technology Pandemic on the Brink. The report documents an explosion in the scope, scale, and severity of ransomware attacks far beyond what is currently known and reported. Max, welcome to Techtopia. Uh, hi, Chitra. Glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. So I, in, in undergrad, I studied both uh, computer science and finance. Uh, I was part of a, a joint degree program that uh, well, really is intended very much for uh, the career path that I ended up uh, making my way to after a bunch of twists and turns. Uh, for, for the first 10 years of my career, uh, I worked as a derivatives trader at Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse, and then uh, I left finance to, uh, to get into tech and worked on a number of different things uh, during that period, um, really just all, all projects that I, uh, I had intellectual curiosity about and I was passionate about. Uh, so I built a real estate data startup called Revaluate. Um, I built a, a nonprofit called FOIA Mapper that had to do with organizing government data. Uh, I went, uh, I taught data science at the University of Pennsylvania, which is my alma mater. Uh, did a little bit of data journalism for The Guardian and various other publications, and um, a lot of consulting work and a lot of uh, just and uh, having fun blogging about uh, a range of different topics. So this is uh, the data stuff. Is the stuff that I, I geek out about. Uh, and, and for me, blockchain, when that, uh, when that came about, I, and I first really started paying attention to it in around 2017, um, I was immediately hooked. It, it kind of has uh, really brought together all the different aspects of my background and all the things that I'm really interested in. As, a, as public data sets go, uh, it's about the most interesting and uh, uh, consequential public data set imaginable. And... Um, yeah, it really just kind of uh, started off with my own intellectual curiosity, as, as I have had with various other domains. Uh, and as I dug in, I got deeper down the uh, the crypto rabbit hole. And uh, I suppose uh, I'm still making my way down uh, today. So, so Elementus is uh, what's known in tech parlance as deep tech. What does that mean? And, and what, is, what does the software platform do in general? And then more specifically and briefly with respect to ransomware attacks, and we're gonna go into that in much more detail later. So uh, 
at Elementus, what we do is we understand what's happening inside the blockchain. Uh, so we're, we're a crypto analytics firm. And uh, in, in particular, uh, the, the biggest problem that we solve and the biggest goal of our technology is to identify uh, actors on chain and in, in particular, um, bad actors. So that would include human traffickers, ransomware, darknet markets, uh, hacks, money launderers, and, and uh, various other categories like that. And we use this technology uh, for a, a range of use cases, but the, uh, the biggest ones currently are for uh, investigation purposes, which is mainly with law enforcement, and for compliance, which is for um, some crypto exchanges, but we're mainly focused on um, financial institutions and other traditional companies that are making their way into crypto. When most people think about ransomware attacks, they think of the traditional cyber attacks. You see the cyber cyber experts on television, but analyzing and detecting ransomware attacks is a whole nother ball game, isn't it, than traditional cyber sleuthing? Although I would imagine that they complement each other in some ways. Yeah, well, in in some ways, ransomware brings together kind of um, kind of brings together a lot of different pieces of of cyber security and cyber attacks that have always existed in kind of their own worlds. So ransomware traditionally, uh, the ransom when they're asking it is. Uh, is in exchange for unlocking the files on your computer, right? The, the ransomware will make its way into your computer. It'll encrypt your files and to get them back, you have to pay it. And that's really how it got started. Nowadays, the bigger concern and the bigger reason why companies are paying ransomware is for uh, is to not release whatever data they've managed to collect. So whereas ransomware data breaches are kind of used to be thought of as two very different worlds of uh, cyber, Ransomware now brings both of those together. And uh, in addition to that, uh, there are a variety of means through which ransomware can be deployed onto uh, the victim's computers. So that can involve different types of, uh, of exploits in, in technology. It can involve human engineering. It can involve breached credentials. And so all these different ways that, that cyber attackers have of, of uh, gaining access to systems are used with ransomware. So it, uh, in many ways, uh, kind of spans uh, the range of, uh, of, of cybersecurity. That's super helpful. So now that we kind of know what ransomware attacks are, tell us how ransomware groups operate and how do they carry out these attacks? And then how do they then process the, the proceeds of their uh, criminal activities? Yeah, sure, sure. So, th so this is something that has evolved a lot over time. Uh, in in the early days, it was uh, typically uh, lone wolf hackers that would code up this software, and they would be aiming for. Uh, I mean, I think the biggest victims initially were just people on their own personal computers, and they'd send along a Bitcoin address and say, hey, "Pay a few thousand bucks here, and we'll give you the the uh, uh, the decryptor software to get your computer back." Um, Nowadays, they have evolved to, uh, to be really the big ones are operated by large criminal organizations that are mainly based in Russia, um, but el elsewhere as well. And there is an entire ecosystem that has uh, developed around ransomware. So you have uh, kind of the, the primary groups that are behind it, but most of those groups don't actually go out and try to infect the machines themselves. Um, they use a, a business model that's known as ransomware as a service. 
So they, they find people, they call them affiliates, uh, they connect with them online. And these affiliates, uh, it's sort of something like a franchise model where people who are able to gain access to, uh, uh, to computers uh, work with the ransomware, deploy the software and uh, take a cut of the proceeds when, uh, when the payment is made. Uh, beyond that, uh, there are uh, a variety of other methods they use. At times, it will involve insiders within the company, perhaps a disgruntled uh, employee that they can give a life-changing amount of money in order to, uh, to install the software into the, the company's uh, computer system. Uh, as far as how the, uh, the funds are processed on the back end, that is a, uh, really depends on a case-by-case on -case basis, but there are a variety of methods that they use to to launder the funds and to uh, to try to cash out. Now, you've just released a key report called "Ransomware: A Technology Pandemic on the Brink," and it sounds pretty ominous. And uh, and and your findings are pretty pretty uh, dramatic, given the scope and extent and severity of these attacks and and what the targets are, et cetera. Could you talk a little bit about what were some of your most um, interesting and scary findings? I think the scariest finding is is looking simply at the trend of uh, the growth of ransomware. The amount of money that's been paid to ransomware has roughly doubled uh, year over year over the last several years, which by itself is quite stark. But what you have on top of that is also the the size of the targets has grown enormously over the last few years. It has very quickly gone from being from really having individuals as the primary targets to small and medium-sized business up to larger businesses. And now uh, ransomware is threatening critical infrastructure. You can really let your imagination go wild if, if the objective of ransomware is to cause the biggest problems that they, they possibly can in order to extort the most amount of money. It's really scary to think where the trend goes if you continue that trend line forward. Last year, we saw oil pipelines attack, and we saw, I believe it was the meat supply chain get disrupted due to ransomware attacks. Um, if you consider um, what could happen if uh, the ransomware were to uh, impact uh, large government agencies or traffic networks or other critical infrastructure that we depend on, it could cause really, really big problems in the future. So I, I would say that that trend line is really the uh, the most concerning finding from our, our analysis. And hospitals are the number one target. Yeah, hospitals, yes, certainly. And so in terms of numbers, we're talking what, billions of dollars being paid up? Is that what we're looking at? Yes, so for uh, for 2021, it was over a, a billion dollars paid in Bitcoin. That's pretty astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, it is a, a remarkable amount of money. And in terms of how this money flows uh, on the blockchain and how it intersects with exchanges, a lot of them are legitimate exchanges, I would imagine. How is this affecting the overall integrity of the, the blockchain ecosystem as a whole? Well, Bitcoin initially uh, was associated with uh, illicit activity. And in, in the early days, that was very much uh, backed up by the facts, I, I think, in the at its peak, about 30% of Bitcoin transactions were linked to some sort of illegal activity. Uh, over the last few years, the narrative has kind of shifted that, uh, that really Bitcoin uh, illicit activity is really a very small percentage of 
um, the total activity. And, and while that's true, um, that amount has steadily grown over time. And uh, nowadays, ransomware makes up a, uh, a really sizable portion of, uh, of the on-chain activity. And uh, yeah, I mean, what you say is absolutely right, that, that once the money is, is sent in Bitcoin, um, that is uh, kind of the beginning of uh, where we're able to pick up the, the trail. And so from that point, we follow the money as it moves through the blockchain and we see where it goes. And some of the, uh, the, the, the destinations where the money is sent, sometimes it's money laundering services, uh, other times it's uh, illegal services that operate on the dark web. Uh, but a large portion of it really is with legitimate exchanges because that's where you can, if, if you really want to cash out in volume, um, there aren't too many illegal services that allow you to do that. So what that means is that, yeah, this, uh, this activity that's happening on chain is, uh, it doesn't operate in its own universe. It, it operates uh, in a very interconnected way with large legitimate services that are also uh, on chain raises a lot of implications for banks and other financial institutions in terms of their compliance needs as well, given that, you know, unless they know where where this money is coming from, it, it potentially puts them at risk. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think that's really the uh, uh, the bottom line for uh, for any company that is, um, uh, is transacting on chain is that this really is something that uh, that you need to be aware of and uh, to be conscious of. In terms of the number of groups and how they operate, what did you find out about the types of groups, the number of groups and how they potentially interact, uh, how they um, infect computers in, with the types of, of malware? Uh, what do you know about that? So I think there is a, uh, there is a close analogy between the, uh, the ransomware families and the groups behind them and the, uh, the organized crime families of the, uh, the 70s and 80s. It, it really is, I think, roughly seven or eight large groups that account for the, uh, the majority of the ransomware activity. And, and just to, give, uh, to paint the picture a bit more from what we see from our perspective is... Uh, as I mentioned, when the ransomware payment is made, uh, the, the, that Bitcoin is sent to an address that the ransomware has provided the victim. And that's where we pick up the trail and we follow the money to see where it goes. And these networks that you see on chain can be quite large. And so you'll often see, yeah, a very large complex looking network where little bits of Bitcoin are sent off to third party services. Some of the different ones I mentioned, money laundering services, uh, illegal darknet markets, uh, legitimate exchanges, payment processors, but uh, some portion of those funds always filters its way into um, what I would describe as uh, sort of the, the hubs of the ransomware networks. And so by looking at those, those hubs, which presumably are controlled by the, uh, the groups that are behind them, uh, they hold large amounts of money. And using that as a starting point, you can draw a lot of inferences about what these different groups are doing. And so for, for example, um, one, of the, uh, one of the findings from our analysis is uh, in looking at the linkages between the families is that Conti, which is the, uh, the ransomware family you mentioned uh, at the start that uh, recently made the threat in response to the, uh, the Russian uh, attack on Ukraine, uh, that one is, uh, is very closely linked with Ryuk, 
a different ransomware family that uh, existed previously. And you can see that by, um, uh, by the fact that the, uh, these hubs, these big wallets deep in the blockchain uh, are receiving funds from both of those two families. Um, so by looking on chain, we can get an idea of which ransomware families are connected to each other, who are the actors that are behind them and ultimately controlling them, and what kind of strategies they're using to try to launder or cash out of the funds. And one of the the interesting sort of pieces of trivia that I learned just in my conversations with you is when we talk about ransomware families, like you mentioned, we think of the, you know, like the La Cosa Nostra, you know, the traditional Italian crime families, but actually in ransomware parlance, the ransomware family is actually the strain that is used, correct? But kind of synonymous with the group as well? Or? Uh, yes. Well, so most of the actors that we are identifying on chain are actually uh, either groups or people that control the wallets. In this case, when you're talking about a ransomware family, what you're really talking about is a strain of software. So uh, it is a bit fuzzy uh, exactly what you mean when you say this address belongs to this ransomware family. Um, but uh, typically the, uh, the, the ransomware, the, the software, the folks behind it are often uh, kind of bundled together. So our evil is the group. Our evil is also how people refer to the software. So yes, you're right that, that uh, the families you're referring to here are more the software than they are the groups, but there is a close correspondence between the two. Now, is it good news or bad news for law enforcement that there's this sort of concentration of power in the hands of a few of these groups, that they're kind of interchangeable, they're morphing one into the other, but if you look at it, a handful of major actors are causing the majority of the damage. What are the implications for that? Well, in, in some ways, I think it's a good thing. Earlier this year, Russia announced the takedown of our evil, or at least a very big part of it. And their activity, I can I can just say from looking at the blockchain, has really has really sort of ground to a halt. So uh, the fact that it is concentrated in a few small groups, I think, uh, to uh, to law enforcement's benefit, uh, means that there is something of a single point of failure that they can target. So in, in that way, it's a it's a good thing. I would say though, predominantly, it is. Uh, I think poses a challenge to law enforcement because it really does represent a uh, a big step forward in the sophistication of uh, of the the actors that are behind it. You know, we had word uh, a couple months ago there was uh, something about one of these groups that was recruiting um, students from university, just like a typical company would. They, um, you know, these are these are really sophisticated groups that have very sophisticated business models and. Uh, the software is also very sophisticated, and especially when you're talking about um, social engineering, which is uh, is is notoriously difficult to uh, to protect against, with sophisticated, intelligent actors uh, behind it. Yeah, I think that that poses a real problem, and especially given given the uh, the geopolitical climate, uh, with most of these groups based in Russia, that doesn't bode well for. For, for law enforcement to be able to, to stop them. They do have a lot of means at their disposal, but yeah, I'd say all things considered, it is a, it is a very difficult problem. I wanna to get to the, the point about the um, use of Bitcoin and Ether, you know, ETH as a sort of the primary 
preferred mode of payment, and I know you've, you've been asked this question before, which is why aren't they using privacy coins like Monero, you know, to hide their trail? And I'm sure you've been, you know, you've, you've been asked, you know, well, if, if blockchain technology is supposed to provide anonymity, then how do we figure out all this stuff? What's, what's your answer to that? Yeah, I, I think this is an interesting one. And, and this is a question that comes up for us all the time, which is, uh, well, so you guys can trace the funds through Bitcoin and Ethereum, but what about all these privacy technologies? What about the privacy coins? What happens when um, actors start adopting those? The, my response to that is, is, is something along the lines of, well, Monero, which is uh, for all intents and purposes untraceable, uh, that's a, a privacy coin. Um, Monero has been around for, for many years. And um, the fact that most ransomware is still requesting the funds in Bitcoin, I think is, is very telling. And it, it's the same also with, uh, with darknet markets, these illegal markets uh, on the dark web where illegal goods are sold. Those markets still predominantly use Bitcoin as well. And the reason why is because if, if you show up somewhere trying to cash out of uh, 10 million in Monero, uh, that's likely to raise some eyebrows. I, I think it would be akin to showing up at a bank with a duffel bag full of uh, hundreds and um, trying to just deposit it there at, at the teller. That yeah, sure you could you could try to do it, but it is uh, unlikely to just go by without uh, raising some attention. So within cryptocurrency, you have this uh, this interesting dynamic where, in the cases where uh, people do go to lengths to cover their tracks and are successful, the money that comes out it, you may not be able to link it back to the original crime, but you can link it back to the fact that somebody went through steps to cover their tracks, which is not a great uh, uh, fact pattern to lay out uh, on its own. So in, in that respect, I think there has been something of a shift from Bitcoin to Monero uh, among ransomware over the last year, but it is not, uh, it's not huge. And I, I would not expect the large ransomware groups to to adopt Monero anytime soon or any of these privacy technologies. And given the anonymity of, of blockchain, um, and and perhaps you could expand a little bit on that. Um, what we what we can see is the groups, but not the individuals, right? And in the end, it takes good old fashioned sleuthing on the part of the FBI or other law enforcement agencies to then start to f use other clues to actually find the individuals behind it and to use subpoena powers and, and the traditional law enforcement methodology to actually take this to its logical conclusion. Uh, yes, that, that's absolutely right. And maybe to, to explain some of this a little better, perhaps it makes sense to take a step back and just explain uh, what I mean when I talk about looking inside the blockchain. The way that I would describe the blockchain is, and when, when we look inside it or anybody looks inside it is, uh, is what you see is, is something very similar to what you would see when you look at your bank statement is you see a, uh, a ledger of transactions uh, in your bank. It might be, here's an incoming payment from my employer. Uh, here is an outgoing payment I made last night to that restaurant that I had dinner at. Um, but you see just a, a series of incoming and outgoing transfers from one counterparty to another. Uh, and the blockchain looks very much like that, except that, of course, instead of dollars, um, the transfers are in Bitcoin or whatever cryptocurrency you're looking at. And everybody's statement is out in the open. So uh, every transaction done by any account 
uh, on the blockchain is fully transparent, except that um, whereas in your bank statement, you see the name of the counterparty, in the blockchain, what you see is just random account numbers. So there is no information in the blockchain that allows you to connect those account numbers to any kind of real world identity. So in our case, uh, that is the work that we do when it comes to folks, uh, uh, organizations like ransomware, uh, crime groups, and darknet markets and others, is we do connect the identity to uh, the addresses. So when law enforcement is, uh, is looking on the blockchain, uh, what you mentioned is correct that uh, in our software and Elementus, they, they won't see any information about individuals, but ultimately um, those funds need to be cashed out at some point. And that's the point at which there is a potential exposure. So when you start with the, uh, the address where the ransomware received the money and you follow the, the money as it moves through the blockchain. If you put it in our software, what you'll see is the third party services that the money is sent to in order to cash out. And it's, it's those points where law enforcement uh, can take action and issue subpoenas. And by looking at those cash out points, you are able to essentially say, look, these may be legitimate addresses or legitimate exchanges, but these look suspicious. And uh, FBI, you need to look at these particular addresses. Yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. You mentioned earlier that, you know, and, and most of these groups that are operating currently are from Russia, but that I think doesn't necessarily mean they're state-sponsored, but potentially just operating with the tacit uh, blessing, I suppose, of Moscow, correct? Well, I, I, I want to be careful about uh, asserting too much here. I, uh, you know, I have my interpretations. I, I don't think anybody knows the answer to these, uh, these questions for sure. Um, but I think just the data points in, in recent memory do give... Um, Kind of some idea of, of where they sit relative to the government. That uh, last month, uh, the Russian government took down the R Evil organization, which uh, tells me that yeah, the, that at least that group is certainly not state sponsored. However, this recent news about well, Conti is the ransomware software. The group behind it is uh, is thought to be uh, an organization known as Wizard Spider. That. Uh, they, in response to the attack on Ukraine and the world's response to it, they threatened to uh, step up the attacks if the West continues. So that points to these groups having at least some connection with the Russian government, whether it's state-sponsored or uh, at least looking the other way. Uh, but I, I think as a general matter, I, I don't think there is a single answer to that question. And, and this has increasingly been on the mind of uh, President Joe Biden and, and the White House. Um, you know, last May, as you mentioned, there was a ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline, which was forced to shut down for days, you know, long lines at the pump, spiking gas prices, loss of consumer confidence. And in fact, President Biden spoke to his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, to essentially tell him to sort of rein in some of these groups. And and last October, uh, President Biden convened a 30-nation uh, virtual meeting at the White House to combat ransomware. And now you're hearing about Conti, uh, you know, and the threat that, to take down any country that, uh, the infrastructure in any country that's uh, essentially speaking out against Russia and its invasion of Ukraine. 
where do you see it all going? I mean, how how do we need to, what what needs to happen in order to start combating these groups and being able to really make a difference? Yeah, boy, that that is the uh, the well billion dollar multi billion dollar question uh, on on the part of the U.S. government. What what, you're, what we've seen so far is action from um, a wide variety of different agencies. So you have FinCEN as the the uh, the regulator um, and OFAC. Uh, that they have placed a number of these uh, these actors that are either involved in the ransomware or that are helping them to cash out. They have been added to the um, to the OFAC sanctions list, so that's one avenue that the government is taking. Recently, there were some um, some strikes by Cybercom. They didn't go into great detail as to what they did, but they they did uh, announce that they had taken some sort of action against ransomware. Which uh, is involvement by the uh, the U.S. military, uh, which I think is a, a very significant step. You also have the intelligence agencies and the law enforcement agencies at the government level um, that are each approaching this in in their own ways. There have been a couple of, of arrests that have happened uh, in in recent memory. Um, so you know all, all these different means uh, the U.S. government's carrying out. I think, as you mentioned. Um, they're looking at this globally, which I, I think makes sense. That all of this is uh, this this really is a global threat. That the blockchain and uh, cybersecurity uh, don't respect borders, and so I think uh, coordination is needed at the uh, the international level um, in order to uh, in order to combat this. Uh, but uh, as for what is the solution? Well, I, I think that there is a lot more that can be gained from looking at the on-chain information. I, I think there are a lot of a lot of leads there and a lot of different directions for for going after ransomware. But I, I think it really is going to be uh, it's going to be a difficult battle. And just over this past week, as as Russia invaded Ukraine, you've seen cryptocurrency sort of join the conversation in three different ways. One is we've talked about, which is Conti, the Conti threat to attack anti-Russian interests. Second, you know, as the United States, the EU, NATO, G7 nations, they're all sort of throwing a, an increasing array of crippling sanctions against Moscow and then against Putin and himself and his oligarchs. What role is crypto likely to play especially as Russian banks start to get crippled by these sanctions as they already are and start to run out of money and Putin starts to feel the heat. I, I'm not quite sure what to make of the uh, the threat by Conti. I, I, my, my starting assumption would be that, that ransomware groups are have always been and are always incentivized to hit as many targets as they can. Uh, there is very little cost to them doing that and um, big potential benefits. So the threat of launching more ransomware attacks that they other wouldn't otherwise wouldn't be incentivized to do uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But uh, but this is uh, this is new. Perhaps there there is some aspect of this that I'm missing. But I, I it sounds to me a bit more like uh, bluster than it is really uh, substance. With respect to the to the sanctions, two examples of, of sanctioned countries and how they're using Bitcoin to to avoid those sanctions. Uh, in the in the case of Venezuela. The government itself operates a uh, crypto, well, a variety of crypto services that are hosted directly on their uh, .gov domain. So they operate as a crypto exchange. They uh, they process remittance payments uh, through their the government website. And uh, in addition to that, they also have official relationships with uh, some of the crypto services uh, and exchanges and miners that 
operate inside of, uh, of Venezuela. There, there was also an attempt to launch their own oil-backed cryptocurrency, the Petro, uh, which is itself a very uh, interesting story, a, a deep and interesting story with a lot of drama that I won't go into detail with here, but they've, they've made a lot of different attempts uh, to use a cryptocurrency in order to evade sanctions. Uh, Iran is another example where uh, in, in Iran, you have a number of different services that exist directly for the purpose of bypassing sanctions and allowing people to uh, conduct commerce and international transfers using Bitcoin um, that conceals them from, um, from being linked to Iran. So you have this, this big uh, series of organizations in the private sector that are uh, dedicated to getting around sanctions. And the government itself, I think, has been I mean, quite explicit really, in, in um, talking about using crypto. And I, I, my understanding is that uh, they have essentially nationalized a number of the mining operations happening there. And they've even invited um, mining companies from other countries. There was a large Turkish miner that relocated to Iran um, in order to produce the cryptocurrency for them to use for the purpose of evading sanctions. So those are two data points from what is really a pretty small universe of, of countries that are that are subject to OFAC sanctions. So it, it would not be surprising to me, um, depending on where the sanctions go with Russia, if, if they were to try something similar. And a third way in which crypto has entered this conversation as as the conflict rages, you know, with Russia invading Ukraine is is on the Ukrainian side, where it, it's been reported that the Ukrainian government has been seeking donations in crypto, although there's been a lot of discussion as to whether those posts and requests for donations were legitimate or some kind of Russian hack, although then Ukrainian officials came back and said, yes, this is legitimate. We're trying to, you know, uh, use crypto to get uh, to fund our military operations. And already, at least I think one of the addresses as of this morning already had $5 million worth of, of uh, crypto. And uh, there's a lot of concern that uh, given the that given the already vast amount of fraud in cryptocurrency today, that this could be just another way that these poor people who want to, you know, like even people like us who want to support what's going on in Ukraine and want to make donations in crypto, we have no idea where it's going. And so are we seeing a new front in how crypto is going to be used both in armed conflict and subversion of democracy on the one side and potentially a new fr a front in philanthropy fraud? Uh, yeah, and I think there is a lot of gray area in there uh, as well. Yeah, so some some of the the, the areas where, where this topic has come up in recent memory have been, um, well, I think the Canadian truckers, uh, they, they've received a lot of money in Bitcoin. Um, WikiLeaks is another one that has received a very large amount of money in Bitcoin. Here in the US, the, the alt-right, there's been a lot of white nationalist groups and other um, white power groups that have... Um, uh, solicited a lot of uh, a lot of money using Bitcoin, and then over in Russia you have uh, you have Ukraine and uh, Navalny, the uh, the opposition candidate to Putin. Um, he also raised a lot of money in, in Bitcoin. So I think it is uh, it is very much a double sided sword. And, and on the one hand, it, it does give uh, the opportunity for your average person to donate to causes that you really care about. Um, which, which I think is great and is, is democratizing on a, on a global level. Um, on the other hand, yeah, I, I do think there is a certainly potential for, for fraud. And uh, most of the, uh, the groups that I mentioned, 
in the case of Ukraine, uh, that's one that I think most people in the US would consider a good cause. But you're talking about WikiLeaks, um, white national nationalist groups. In some ways, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think that the, uh, most people look at that and say, wow, that is a great, uh, one of the great benefits of Bitcoin, that in some ways, these groups that, that, are, that are cut off arguably for very good reasons from um, collecting funds in various other channels can use Bitcoin to collect these donations. And so it, it does certainly seem like it is a, a growing trend, although you know who knows where that's gonna go and, and whether that will be a power for good or for, uh, you know, for funding things that uh, most people would not be thrilled to know is, uh, is, are collecting uh, money. Well, we're certainly at a very interesting and historic moment in the intersection of technology and geopolitics now, especially given that Russia not only happens to be, you know, what, the second largest nuclear uh, threat, uh, but also one of the leading cyber attackers in the world and now host to some of the most lethal ransomware groups in the world, enough to keep a lot of people up at night. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would go further and say, um, uh, well, about 1% of the uh, activity on Bitcoin is is linked to uh, something illegal, and more than half of that comes through uh, Russia. So they are certainly um, the nexus of uh, of the dark underbelly of of, uh, of blockchain. Max, thank you so much for this great conversation and a primer on uh, ransomware. I mean, you and I speak daily, you know, and virtually mm -hmm. every conversation we've had over the past six months has touched on ransomware attacks. And so I'm really happy to share this this uh, conversation with uh, with my audience. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. Yeah, likewise, Chitra. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Max Galka is the CEO and founder of Elementus, where, by way of disclosure, I serve as Chief Strategy Officer. A data scientist by training and passion, Galka is a former derivatives trader at Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse. He's a frequently cited authority on blockchain and cryptocurrency with deep expertise in ransomware attacks. Galka's recent media appearances include NBC News, Yahoo, Fast Company, Coindesk, TechCrunch, ThreatPost, Security Boulevard, and Cointelegraph. His data analyses and data visualizations have been featured in The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, and other national and international publications. Galka has served as an adjunct lecturer in data science at the University of Pennsylvania. He holds degrees in finance from the Wharton School of Business and computer science engineering from the University of Pennsylvania. Galka is the lead author of a disturbing new report on ransomware attacks titled Ransomware, a Technology Pandemic on the Brink. The report breaks new ground in revealing the explosive scope, reach, and lethality of these new crime families. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.